Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Alex Stewart. Good morning, Joe. Good morning and Seb stafford Bloor. Hello, Joe. Hello. Uh, there are two other guests who join us uh, for bits of today's episode. The first is Liam Toomey, uh, who comes along to talk about the recent situation, uh, or the recent uncertainty, I should say, with Frank Lampard at Chelsea. Now, of course, they they, they lost over the weekend to Manchester City. The Athletic released a story uh, about uh, Chelsea potentially talking about uh, potential replacements. So we start with Liam. The middle of the episode, we then move on to uh, do our sensible transfers bit. But from the perspective of the player, uh, players including Julian Draxler, I've forgotten the rest. <laughs> Emmy Buendia. <laughs> Emmy Buendia. <laughs> Chelsea's Capper no. is on there as well. Uh, Chelsea's Marcel Sabitzer, we talk about. Marcel Sabitzer. Then you go off on that weird little tangent about professional wrestling. Professional wrestling. Uh, and then at the end of the episode, uh, we talk to the wonderful Joey Durso, uh, who releases an interesting piece, probably a bit of a pace change, come to think of it. I recorded it yesterday, so it probably won't fit in with the lightheartedness of the rest of the episode. Uh, but a very interesting discussion on how certain clubs approach uh, the culture wars uh, within football on the internet, i.e. Uh, when Premier League clubs uh, display sort of rainbow colours or rainbow laces or, or whatever on their uh, English-speaking social media and don't do it on other social media that is directed at other regions of the world. Uh, an interesting uh, 10 minutes there uh, and a discussion starter. So thanks to everyone for participating in today's episode. Um, and of course, do you know where you can read great football stories, Alex? Yes, I do. And do you know how much it costs you to do so at the moment, Seb? No, I do not. It's £1 per week. Hmm? That's a good hey, deal. That is a that good is deal. Good. And do you know what makes it sound like a good deal, even more good deal? When you say, hey, afterwards? If you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you'll find that a £1 per week uh, offer is available to you to enjoy all of the luxuries and exclusivity of being a member of the Athletic family. It sounds like I read that off something, doesn't it? That was, tell you what, that was really good. That was really good. But do that, please, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. And for now, I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of at least four different people. So Liam, at full time at the Manchester City-Chelsea game, obviously Manchester City won 3-1, you and Simon released a piece on The Athletic that suggested that Chelsea were talking about and thinking about potential replacements for Frank Lampard. And now obviously this isn't just uh, in reaction to a 3-1 loss against Manchester City, however you know, well Manchester City played in that game. Uh, but you did release it at full time. So can you talk us through the timing a little bit? Because I know there were a lot of people who, who'd read it who were interested in that aspect of it. Yeah, safe to say there was a mixed reaction to the timing of our story and some people found it a little bit dis distasteful. I don't think there's a good time to run a story like that, uh, is the first thing to say. But the main reason why we released it when we did is because we'd been gathering information um, and hearing things for, for a number of days ahead of the game that suggested that Lampard's position was, was under serious threat. So... Obviously, even though the, the, the piece was released pretty much on the full-time whistle, it was not based 
on the Manchester City result. The thinking behind waiting until the end of that game was because if that game had panned out differently, if Chelsea's performance had been much more positive, there could have been the potential for the situation to materially change. You know, a win over Pep Guardiola at Stamford Bridge could have had a galvanising effect on the situation and maybe reassured people at the at the top of the club about the direction in which things were going. So we had to wait and see how the game played out to see if anything would materially change. Um, and we were talking to the sources that contributed to the story, um, even during the game, to see how the situation was developing. And it and it quickly became clear, given the nature of Chelsea's performance and the fact that they weren't even competitive for large portions of the game, as excellent as Manchester City were, um, that what we were seeing was actually a continuation of the the last month's form, really, that has raised serious questions about about Lampard's suitability for for this job long term in the in the eyes of the people above him, and so we we ran the story, and um, it's it's never an easy decision to to run a story as as big as that, and we certainly didn't do it lightly, but uh, we're very confident in the information that that underpins it. Is this a situation which is all about performance and results, or are there other components to it? So the first thing and the last thing is always um, results when it comes to a manager. And the fact that Chelsea's performances over the last month have not offered any cause for optimism beyond the results. You know, there there aren't really any green shoots of improvement. And even the, the one game that they've won in the last seven against West Ham was nowhere near as convincing a performance as the scoreline suggested it was. Um, so that's a huge, huge part of this, but it's not the only factor at play. Um, the ongoing struggles of Timo Werner and Kai Havertz are a big issue. These were Chelsea's two headline signings. And in the case of Kai Havertz, someone that the club have been monitoring for a long time, have a huge amount invested in from the owner down. Um, everyone wants to see him succeed and be a key part of uh, of Chelsea's future. The fact that they've kind of been shifted around positionally and, and, and not found their rhythm in, in Lampard's system, I think, has, has hurt Lampard. And the other element of this is that, you know, tensions have been growing in the dressing room as well uh, within this squad, between certain members of this squad and, and Lampard, particularly some of the players that haven't been playing and perhaps don't feel like they've been given a fair chance by the manager. And, th- and this often happens at clubs, you know, th- uh, part of a manager's job is to disappoint players that that aren't quite as keen, that aren't quite as key to his plans, um, and it happens at Chelsea a lot. And these things become amplified when results are are not going well on the pitch. The fact that Chelsea have a bigger squad than normal, um, I think, has made things worse. And the fact that they've got some more established players on the fringes now. Um, has made things more complicated but that's that's all part of this um, equation and it's it's left Lampard fighting to to convince the people above him really um, fighting an uphill battle it now seems to convince the people above him that he is the the man to oversee what was previously being described as a long-term project yeah I mean that's my next question really I mean what is the timeline here because it, it does feel as if this has kind of gone beyond the point of no return um what does Lampard have to do to to convince those above him 
Well, the the timeline is always the hardest thing to to talk about because when you're talking about Chelsea making a managerial change, it is essentially one man's decision. And he might not even necessarily know yet. The point of the story was simply to say that these conversations have started and they're they're not they're not abstract conversations. They're not they're not saying we like this guy in Germany or they're saying basically who could do better than than Lampard with this group of players. And we know from the history of of Chelsea that once those conversations start, we know how they how they finish. We've seen this movie before. So it is difficult to to see what Lampard can do. I mean, the first thing is is obviously win a few games and Chelsea have a slightly more favourable run of fixtures coming up now after this City game. The performances will be every bit as important as the results. Chelsea need to look a lot more convincing in terms of the structure of this team, the cohesion of this team, the the intensity which has dropped off a cliff since they beat Leeds at the beginning of December. Those are all things that would help Lampard, but it's hard for me to see how he could completely convince the people above him now that these doubts have reached a certain stage, just because we, we've seen this. We've, we've seen this in the Abramovich era. Once managers start facing these kinds of questions, um, it, it's very, very difficult for, for them to answer them in a way that gives them long-term job security. Is there a is there a particular attribute he um, is presumed not to have, or, or one that if he were to be replaced, the club would look to go after? I mean, you mentioned sort of the tactical identity and cohesion. Is there anything more to it than that? Because it sort of feels like, um, I mean, obviously results need to improve, but that's kind of a managerial imperative in the modern era. Is there something that he he's lacking? Well, I think one of the things that he's lacking that isn't possible to address at this point in time is, is is a managerial track record. Everybody knew when when Lampard got this job that he wouldn't have got it in normal circumstances. And I think he would be the first to admit that. He got it because he was he was Frank Lampard, he was arguably Chelsea's greatest ever player and Chelsea were at a unique point in terms of the transfer ban and, and not really being the most attractive option to proven top coaches. But the fact that he doesn't have that track record um, of success at the top level in the dugout means that when you go through spells like this, um, it becomes harder for the people above you to believe that you have the capability to turn it around just because they haven't seen you do it before in a way that many other more established coaches might be able to to credibly argue. So that I think is one of the most significant things that that Lampard lacks and it's not something he can he can address. You know, this this is the nature of the bargain that he and Chelsea both made when they when they signed up to this was that they knew he was a rookie coach who would be learning on the job and and when moments like this come and 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 that faith is tested uh there isn't really a lot to to fall back on to to give Chelsea reassurance that that he can get things moving in the right direction again. Okay, so presumably somewhere at Stamford Bridge, there's a, a list of uh, potential replacements. What what kind of names are on there? Well, we can't that we can't re- talk about everything we know yet, which is why I know some people were frustrated that there wasn't more 
detail in the story that Simon and I published, um, we, we, we just had to point out that this process has begun, really. This story is beginning, and there will be a lot more time to talk about managers who are in the frame to, to succeed Lampard as and when that happens. The one thing I can say is that you know they don't have someone immediately lined up because if they did, I think Lampard would probably already be gone. That's the way Chelsea operate. They are having conversations to assess their options. We know, of course, that Mauricio Pochettino is not one of those options anymore. He was someone that Chelsea liked for a long time and they weren't the only top European club who who very much liked Pochettino. Um, but the, the, the timing on that has... Ha, has not worked he's he's taken the PSG job and taken himself out of the market but Chelsea will always um, back themselves in these situations if they feel like they need to get rid of Lampard sooner rather than later i.e before the end of the season then they will they will back themselves to find someone who can come in either temporarily or who can who can be appointed immediately as the long-term manager who can do a better job of maximising this group of players. That's that. That's just the way Chelsea have always thought. Yeah, I was going to say it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I suppose that uh, were they able to wait until the end of the season, that would be better for their um, long-term chances of getting it. Sorry, their chances of getting a long-term, you know, good long-term manager. But maybe you say there's always temporary options. Anyway, Liam, thanks so much for for coming to talk to us this morning. It must have been a busy weekend for you, so we appreciate it. And of course, if you want to uh, hear more about the story now. And you're fed up of us. You can go and listen to Liam and Co on Straight Out of Cobham, the uh, the Chelsea specific athletic podcast as well, which is a fantastic listen. So that's out now. Uh, do go and enjoy it. And Liam, we'll we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, guys. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Okay, we've done the bit on Chelsea. Let's now do the bit on sensible transfers. But amusingly, let's stay with Chelsea because Jax Warren asked us to talk about Kepa. Um, so, Seb, let's begin with you. Uh, pitch time elsewhere presumably is on the mind, uh, given that Edouard Mendy has taken over the number one position at Chelsea. But, of course, Kepa was extremely expensive when he arrived, so presumably that prices him out of some clubs. What, what, what do you think about the situation? Well, the, the difficulty, Joe, is probably also his wage, because obviously he came in for that, that big transfer fee, but also, a, uh, you'd imagine, um, he's paid um, commensurate with with his ability at the time and his standing in the game, which is no longer what it was. Um, I think the difficulty with him is you could make a case for him wanting to go elsewhere, but where really would he go? Because he his reputation has been damaged. We know this. His confidence is probably pretty low. So anybody taking a chance on him, even on loan, would be 
banking on him recovering, which I don't know with goalkeeper, it always feels as if you you're never a goalkeeper is never just like one or two games away from returning to form or full confidence. He always needs like a couple of months. So that doesn't really suit the nature of a loan deal, does it? Um, so I, not I really. Don't know. And also, I, mean, I was thinking as you're talking uh, for a goalkeeper, it's almost the worst position to to, to play to get into this situation because now, as you say, he's uh, probably uh, overpriced for what clubs would be willing to pay for him. As you describe, a loan deal for a goalkeeper is a fairly difficult one, particularly uh, given that you know loan deals are often done by by clubs who you know don't have the money to to pay. And I know there are certain situations where they happen between bigger clubs, but looking around Europe at the moment and Europe's bigger clubs, uh, who needs a goalkeeper that much? Amongst the top clubs, no one, really. Um, if you go around, I mean, you could probably make a case at Borussia Dortmund, possibly. Um, but then th- these are all, I mean, these are all these are all guesses based on the player that Kepa was, not the player that he is now, because the player that he is now just doesn't belong at a top-tier club because he's a liability. You need to... Ideally, he needs a landing spot in mid-table, somewhere where the expectations are lower, where he can rebuild and where he can then begin his climb back to where he was. But then again, what kind of mid-level club, especially now, has that kind of finance behind it? Yeah, in the time of coronavirus. Uh, Alex, how would you deal with this? Um, If I were Kepper, I would probably wait it out. Um, I'm maybe less hard on Mendy than Seb is, but at the same time, uh, you know, he's not... He doesn't strike me as the sort of player that you hang everything on. Um, and and as Seb correctly pointed out, you know, when Kepa was signed, he was signed for that sort of money because, you know, he was playing really, really well. I I think Dortmund, Dortmund are a club that oddly haven't really addressed their goalkeeping situation for quite a while. Um, Berkey is good, but he's not great. The other two that sort of spring to mind potentially... Uh, Roma are still using Antonio Morante quite a lot and he's 37 um, and isn't amazing and Roma do have spare cash uh, and and have taken goalkeepers on loan before um, and Monaco as well possibly um, you know again there are financial considerations with Liga, but Monaco are either playing Benjamin Lecomte um, or Vito Manoni um, the ex-Sunderland goalkeeper oh, Vito uh, Manoni yeah, right. So neither <laughs> neither of them are amazing. Um, Lecomte is 29. Um, Manoni used to play for Sunderland. So, you know, if, if, there's, if there's potentially spare cash around there to pay some of the wages, Monaco are the sort of club, I think, where, you know, you might be able to get your form back. But I, I think Seb's point there is, is really important, that goalkeepers... You know, part of what's happened with Kepper is is this exposure to to suddenly going to a really big club with a huge wage um, bill and uh, a huge transfer tag, and that has clearly not worked out. the 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 mental consideration there uh, is enormous, and and somewhere that he can rediscover his form um, and you know, kind of nurse himself back to to some degree of, of competence I mean potentially even return to athletic um, yeah. and uh, you know Uno Simon is is a decent goalkeeper but he's not exceptional um, and and so that's you know that's where he came from that's where <clears throat> he developed and presumably as well he'll have a relationship with the goalkeeping coaching staff there which I think is really important um, but his options are limited I would say you know with the backdrop to the Chelsea situation probably setting it out and working hard in training is the sensible approach for him 
Um, but it's very, very hard to say. He's a particularly difficult case. He needs to change his technique, to be honest. Like when he's, well, if you if you watch him, he his first step is always backwards. If you look at the kind of goals he concedes from set pieces or crosses, it's amazing. Like how I mean, how reticent he is around the ball. So you, you that's a confidence you, thing, though, right? That's not a technique thing. Well, I I don't know, Joe. Maybe it is. It's just that it's something that's been in his game since he arrived in England. Since very early on, if you if you if you look at, I I always think of a goal he conceded at Wembley uh, to Deli Ali when Ali kind of he won a like a header on the, the penalty spot and you know headed it kind of through Kepa and I felt that described the floor in his technique quite well because all of his weight goes backwards It'd be interesting to hear someone like David Priest talk about this because it, it just seems it's um it seems to be the opposite of what we're told a a strong Premier League goalkeeper should be and how they should behave in that situation strange well da David Priest was talking about uh Ilan Melier on Twitter the other day um and one of the points he made is that Melier's head quite often goes backwards. And obviously, when your head moves in a particular direction, a lot of the weight of your body follows that. Um, and what he was saying is that that is the sort of flaw that can be coached out of a player. That, you know, in terms of getting the head forwards, there are certain exercises that one can do uh, to to adjust that position, get the player diving forwards more um, or, or staying, you know, kind of lateral. And I think potentially with Kepa, you know, that there's obviously there's a confidence issue, but the, the technical flaws are something that can be addressed with a good coaching team. And that's why potentially, say, a move back to Athletic on loan where he can work with the coaching team that brought him to the level that he was at would be good because it, it you know it may be that the change in goalkeeping coaching that he received when he went to Chelsea not necessarily introduce some of these flaws into his technique but but you know change the way he was being asked to move something like that and that may be a contributory factor yeah I think that's interesting I, I was also going to say I, I was looking at um his page on transfer marked which uh as is my want, I like to do that. Uh, and I don't know if you can guess, if I give you some info, obviously his transfer was for £72 million two years ago. At that point, he uh, transfer marked valued him at £54 million. Um, could either of you guess what his current uh, estimated value is, according to transfer marked? About half that. About 20. That's 13.5. Mm. Mm. Uh, which is quite a significant drop off isn't it so maybe that makes him affordable i don't know i mean you know say the transfer fee at the time of the valuation was still 20 million pounds over the top that probably has something to do with the fact it was a big english club um but he's also only 26 and he's got a long career ahead of him that's what i was going to say he has a lot of career ahead which means that you, you can you can absorb some of this you can you can give him a, a season or two to recover i mean he he wouldn't necessarily be the very worst investment he's just out of reach for a lot of clubs poor guy that's what i think it sucks doesn't it sure does uh, well, I was a goalkeeper at school, so I sympathise with goalkeepers because uh, we're all we're all great people. We're all great people. Uh, Julian Draxler, speaking of great people, great players <laughs> at PSG. This was asked for by Lewis uh, Chapel. Um, Alex, let's start with you. We checked a bit about Julian Draxler before the podcast recording. Talk to me about Julian Draxler. He's a bit of an odd player. Um, he came through the youth system at Schalke, which is, um, you know, renowned for, for producing young players. And I'm sure we're, we're possibly going to come and talk about Schalke a little bit later on. 
he then had uh, one really good season at Wolfsburg, one not so great season, and then obviously moved to Paris Saint-Germain, where he's basically not done an awful lot. Um, but he has actually been consistently reasonable when he's been called on. Um, he's a surprisingly versatile player, so he can play as a as a left inside forward, which is what he does um, largely for the German national team when he uh, still occasionally plays for them. But he can play as a ten. When he's come on this season for Paris Saint Germain, he's often come on as the right sided midfielder in a three. He's a really nice kind of linking player uh, he's able to play good little passes forwards receive the ball spray it around reminds me a little bit of James Rodriguez playing that position at Bayern Munich um, a, a season or two ago where he was you know he's a creative player but he was playing in a deeper role where his job was to kind of keep everything going now that that is with the caveat that at PSG this season he's he's mostly been used off the bench um Popped up with an important goal against Mets when uh, they were nil-nil until the absolute death and PSG were down to nine players. So he still very much has something. Um, It's just he's not getting game time because PSG has so many other good players in creative positions. I think any Premier League side that is not an established top six team would be good. I would particularly look, and I say this with the caveat that I would also include Arsenal in that, because I think as a short-term signing, he could be beneficial for Arsenal. Um, Potentially someone like Newcastle, Fulham, I think would be interesting, Crystal Palace. Somebody who needs a a versatile, creative player who's good at keeping the ball, good at doing sensible things with it. And he's also six foot one and, and a decent presser of the ball. So he would physically, I think, adjust fairly well to the Premier League. Uh, I would love to see Julian Draxler at Newcastle. I think that would be that would be hilarious and exciting. And actually, he'd fit in with the, with a squad of uh, of pretty decent attacking talent. Now, I guess Steve Bruce would probably still play five at the back, though, wouldn't he? Sir? Yeah, and also all of that, you know, nice attacking talent would just be watching Newcastle defend. So, it's, sure, I don't know, <laughs> sure. Like it'd be quite a, quite a, quite a lonely time for Julian Draxler at Newcastle. I think <laughs> what 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 is sensible for Newcastle isn't necessarily what's going to happen. But he, you know, exactly sure. he would add something. Exactly that. He absolutely yeah. would. Uh, let me let me put it this way to you, Seb. He was very exciting when he was at Schalke. People were talking about him all the time, as evidenced by his move to you know Super Club PSG. Uh, so to hear Alex saying that you know he would be a good fit at a Premier League team, including Arsenal, that wasn't in the in the top six, it's um it seems like a, a fall to me. Am I just misreading that? Have I got a, have I, am I looking no, I at it through right. the media narrative? No, I think you're right, Joe. Also, that Schalke team was great. There were, you know, Lewis Holtby was in there, Klaus Jan Huntala was there, Jefferson Farfan. That was a really good side. I think the problem for Julian Draxler is that he he's certainly good enough to play for PSG. And actually, um, in his second and third season, I think he was pretty heavily involved. Um, maybe 25 plus appearances in the league. The problem is what, he's what, not. What's he like as a player, by the way? Fun. Fun. Yeah. Sweet ball striker, you know, technically good. It's just the, it's the profile, it's not the ability. It's the it's the it's the sense that he's now forgive me PSG fans, but he's just not famous enough to play for that side, you know because you there, there, there's a certain expectation I think of um, profile. It also doesn't help if you are uh, if you prefer to play from the left hand side cutting in uh, in that team because obviously that's Neymar's favorite position really. Um, and Mbappe takes up a little bit of space in that area as well. So it's just it's just a it's career mismanagement. And it, you know, nothing, nothing 
nothing characterizes that more than us sitting here going, maybe you should go and learn to Fulham. You know, it's, just, it's, just, it's really quite damning. And so I, maybe I mean, he's a steal for someone then, like because you often find players who get into this position. You know, as you say, they make the wrong move uh, as a possibility for what's happened here. Uh, they devalue themselves as a result of it. They're still expensive because they're coming from a big club, but they're looking for game time and they're willing to take opportunities and, and make some sacrifices. And then you, you know, that I can think of so many players who've been a major success entering the Premier League at a kind of. Uh, you know, mid to or top table, top table side, um, top half of the table side team. I'm saying, um, and, and yeah, but been been a huge success upon arrival. That that one quite excites me. That idea. I would uh, in um, sensible transfers world, which is not quite the same as the actual transfer market. I would like to see uh, Drax and, and Hamas Rodriguez play behind Dominic Calvert Lewin at Everton. I think that'd be really interesting. Although poor old Charleston. Well, I don't, yeah, that's a fair point. Actually, you probably have to build him into a three. Um, yeah, I think. I think I with know. Draxler, one of the things that encourages me about him is that he's played only just over a thousand minutes in the last two seasons. Yeah. But in the league, he scored two goals and contributed five assists, which, in terms of his, you know, per nineties for both of those, and that none of those goals are penalties, um, means that he's you know point five last season, point six this season. So he's He's contributing something for every 180 minutes he plays. And and that for somebody who is not getting into a team, not necessarily because of ability, but because of the, you know, the cavalcade of really good attacking players that are ahead of him, speaks to somebody who is professional, who's able to maintain their standards, who's able to influence games when he does play. Um, and And there is that flexibility. Like I said, you know, he's been playing as a central midfielder recently and getting forwards quite a lot. So there's, there's definitely still a player there. He's not like one of those guys who sort of drifted away from, you know, the early promise of youth and, and hasn't got the, the potential to still deliver on it. Like a Max Meyer, for example, you know, it's, there's, there's a very, there's a very oh, good Max player. Oh, Max Meyer's there. a tragedy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe that's why Palace wouldn't take Draxler. But um, oh, you know, I, 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 there's the, if a if a good Premier League side took a gamble on him, I think they'd be handsomely rewarded. Can I can I explore the Arsenal angle though, just momentarily? Because uh, uh, what is his favoured position? Would you say his favoured position would be playing as a left inside forward? So Aubameyang plays there for for Arsenal, right? But shouldn't. But shouldn't. Well, I'd, I mean, personally, I'd play... I mean, I think that we would get into an Arsenal discussion. I think Arsenal should play Aubameyang through the centre because they they need to have somebody that they can get the ball forwards to who's in an advanced position. And because Lacazette is having to drop off so much because of the lack of... I mean, the other thing with Draxler is that he could, he could play as a 10 for Arsenal. He's good at getting forwards into the box. He's got that kind of passing that can unlock defences as a six foot one quick attacking midfielder. He can then get into the box himself and provide a threat. Um, the goal against Mets was a header where he followed up on a blocked shot. So, you know, he would add something to a variety of different issues that Arsenal have. Um, and and I think stylistically he'd be a fit. Like he's a very watchable player, like Seb said. You know, he he's nice, he's elegant, he's upright on the ball. Um, his his passing range is good, you know, and and as a sort of short term, we need to bring in somebody to add a bit of creativity and excitement where we don't currently have it. Um, 
I think that would be a very plausible fit. I like it. Um, we need to move on, though, to Schalke. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about a particular player, Ozan Kabak, uh, who was asked for by uh, listener Alk. Uh, but beforehand, um, Schalke, what the fuck? <laughs> They've got, they haven't won a game. I didn't know this. I just I was reading the plan beforehand, and it says Schalke are doomed, clearly. And I said, oh, are they? I thought Schalke were a good team. And then I looked. And uh, so I'm assuming there are some people, probably not many as stupid as me, listening to this podcast who are, are unaware of this. Um, uh, Seb, can you take us through the situation? I cannot. I know nothing about. Oh, sorry, I've come to the, the wrong person. Alex, can you take us through the situation? <laughs> um, yes, I can, because this morning before this podcast, I read Rafa Honigstein's piece on the Athletic ah, uh, about wonderful about Rafa. how and why Schalke have imploded. I mean the the. The short answer is that they're two hundred million pounds or two hundred million euros, sorry, in debt. Yes. Um, that their uh, their team building has recently been. He has a killer line in the article, which is, "Those who stay do so because they're not good enough to leave." So no. <laughs> it's like where I came from, my town. Yeah, that's okay. No comment. Um, it's well, uh, I won't say what town it was. Like like we've said, you know, Schalke have this reputation for for producing good and exciting young players, um, and they go and they are replaced by you know sort of journeymen who aren't necessarily fitting in somewhere else. Um, there's a huge pressure at the club because they're you know they're in the Ruhr Valley in in Germany, which is kind of like the heart of German football. They have this massive rivalry with with Dortmund, who've obviously overshadowed them massively of late. And there's also considerable unrest behind the scenes. So the whole thing is a basket case and they're they're rooted to the bottom of the Bundesliga at the moment. They had David Wagner in who didn't work out, the ex-Huddersfield manager. They've now got uh, Baum in there who's a much more kind of softly spoken congenial guy but isn't really getting great performances from them. Um, and anybody who's good at Schalke is, is a saleable asset. And that includes uh, Kabak. Okay, well, tell me a little bit about Kabak then. I, I don't know anything about him. Uh, he's a Turkish centre back. Uh, he's uh, he, he's a very good passer of the ball. He likes to bring it forwards. Um, he doesn't dribble often, but when he does, he tends to to pick his moments wisely and and quite successfully. He loves these long kind of sweeping passes that that take it from the right centre-back slot across to the the left winger he's very capable with those um reasonably good in the air um and you know he's he's physically like he's he's six foot one i think he's not massive he's not really really strong player um but he's got that kind of elegant ball carrying centre-back thing that people seem enamored of at the moment he's like he's not as good on the ball as sionchu he's not quite as tough as Demirel, the the Juve centre back who's doing really well, who's Turkish. Um, he's sort of in the middle, but he's only twenty, and and he does have a very high ceiling. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Seb, presuming you don't know much about the player, no, I do like Demirel though. Uh, he's one that's really interesting because I, I know he's we're ad-libbing him onto the list, but uh, kind of out of favourite Juventus, and he is a uh, he's one of those players that maybe given the circumstances could be. Um, taken away short term just to ease a wage bill somewhere else but you know someone stop would get a trying very, to very sneak exciting additional players onto our list Seb we've got a list to get through Sorry. here Demerol would, 
Demerol would definitely <laughs> not look out of place in the Premier League. Look what you've done, Seb. Look what you've started a conversation about the podcast. He and he's gonna he's gonna pick it up now, and he's gonna talk about it with class and elegance. No, well, I'm. Well, I I don't know if that he was me or Seb, but all all I'd say with Demerol is that he um he's he's got that kind of slight toughness that that Italian or or centre backs who thrive in Italy have. The fact that he's not being used. all that much at Juve is, is a slight surprise. Um, I mean, he's not like totally peripheral there, um, but he's still young and and he does look like he's physically cut out for a good Premier League side. Um, so yeah, uh, but Kabak, Kabak's more of that sort of elegant on the ball type of defender. Um, you know, if, if you were, I don't know if he's sort of like quite yet at Manchester City level but it's that sort of style of defender rather than somebody who's a bit more roughhouse Do you know what I know about Demerel? Tell me He's not on the list uh, Emmy Buendia uh, from Norwich Lots of people have asked about Buendia I think mainly because he's been linked to uh, Aston Villa and the series of Premier League clubs and so he should be because he's great um, and I don't know if either of you uh, saw his goal the other day against a team I've forgotten about, but Uncle Damien texted me and said, uh, uh, he said, oh, mate, you've got to watch, he doesn't sound like this, mate, you've got to watch the Emmy Buendia goal. Watched it. Hey, that's Ooh, not a bl- bad Uncle lovely. Damien, actually. It's, it's, I mean, no, it's, it's, it's fair I've made him much more colloquial than he actually is. Uh, but uh, lovely chap. Uncle he is a lovely chap, Uncle Damien. <laughs> he sent me a game. I'm going to do a question for you in a second. Uh, he sent us a game. Anyway, uh, he, he texted me and said, watch this goal. I was it playing? I can't remember who they were playing. Anyway, lovely goal. Uh, a lofted ball all the way from the halfway line off to the side a little. Um, and he, he takes it on the volley and pops it just to the left past the keeper. Delightful stuff. For a man, he's, he's you know, scored, um, oh, you've written it here for me, six goals and six assists this season. Thanks very much. I know he struggled a little bit in the, the Premier League in terms of those those statistics, the goals and assists and the actual goal, goal contributions, but I think that's more to do with Norwich in the league because uh, he certainly created a lot. Um, he's, he's, he, I know uh, that he, he's a popular sort of comparison to some of the Europe's big players in terms of his creative output, Alex. Yeah, massively so, um, and and it is particularly among like analytics Twitter, if we can refer to something as gauche as that. Um, the the fact that he's not moved to a Premier League side is a persistent mystery. Um, well, it's it's because he's a committed canary. That's why. Well, it's because I mean, he it, loves the club, Alex. I, I suspect it's probably more because the club loves him and would therefore ask the earth for him. Um, yeah, probably. And and I think he's contracted for quite some time yet, possibly. And he'll have a Riverside apartment in Norwich. And, yeah, you know, Norwich Daniel Farker seems like a city, fun guy. Lovely you know. city. Right. Uh, a lot of, you know, <laughs> safe walking. Go on. And and Norwich could get re-promoted. Um, so, you know, th- there's, there's every reason for Norwich to make him yeah, as unappealing they, they to suitors as possible. Um, Absolutely. But I th- I think <laughs> I think there was this is this is just carrying your your pro Norwich bias through a question, isn't it? Um, no, no, no. It's just really weird subliminal propaganda just seeping it's out. It's not even subliminal, Seb. It's absolutely direct. <laughs> it's subliminal. It's subliminal. It's really subliminal. Tourist yeah. board. Um, <laughs> yeah. no, I should. No, they should just start sending me some money because tell you what, pff, lovely place to go. Not at the yeah. moment though. Stay away. Uh, don't want you know. We just got to hey, stay at home. 
carry I on. I mean, I, I, I have been to Norfolk on holiday, and it was, it was quite nice. A lot of pigs um, there. A lot of what? There's a lot of pigs in Norfolk. They do a lot of pig farming. Right. I mean, I can't say that that was... Hang on, hang on. I got shouted at for bringing Demerel into the, into the podcast, and now you've got to... <laughs> Norfolk. That was just my vibe Lots of at the pigs. time. <laughs> pigs per capita in Norfolk. The Norfolk Tourist uh, Board. A, uh, Safe walking in Norwich. Seb, what do you think about Emmy Buendia? I find it strange. I, 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 I actually feel as if he was damaged by what happened last season and the kind of the uh, slightly false narrative around him and the kind of the, uh, the lazy tag that he was, uh, he was whipped with. Um, it felt that as if the, sort of the combination of that and the likely very large transfer fee kind of prevented him from, um, from getting moved, not, probably not into the top four, but into sort of a, a top eight type, type side, I think. So what's a good fit? Let's pick a club. Let's pick a Premier League club that's a good fit for him. Honestly, Norwich. Honestly, Norwich. I like the idea of a player staying, getting re-promoted and coming back into the Premier League because I think that if you wait 18 months and he gives a better account of himself in the Premier League with a, a team and a manager that he knows, the move he gets as a result of that is going to be better. Well done, Seb. You can talk more. Do you want to say anything else about Demerel? You can now. No, no. no. My Demerel okay. enthusiasm has been snatched away. Alex, have you got anything else you want to say about Buendia or shall we very, very quickly do Marcel Sabitzer? Um, I, yeah, I, I agree with Seb. Okay, then very, very quickly do Marcel Sabitzer. Sabitzer is, uh, he's, a, he's an interesting creative player. He's in the sort of the wide areas of the 4222 uh, that Leipzig use. Um, he cuts inside good, hard-working player, um, creative, would fit at Southampton, although Stuart Armstrong is in that role currently and doing very, very well and has just signed a new contract. Okay. Seb, anything to add? It's character with him. He is uh, He's a horrible little player to play against. Gifted, technically really good, but I think that um, the teams that are going to be interested in him are they're going to go after the competitor. I saw him live, actually, in Leipzig, um, right at the beginning of the lockdown, just before it started. And he is just this sort of bundle of, uh, not quite aggression, but yeah, he's just competition, he's niggly. Um, and that all sort of complements a you know, like real like pronounced technical ability. I, I think he'd be a good fit at Tottenham, actually. Um, the finances were probably a little bit prohibitive, but super player. And a perfect Jose Mourinho player as well, because of this attitude towards playing the game and the way he holds himself on the pitch. That that I think that's right. He's he's like when when Shakiri's at his best, that's spiky, sort of nuggety, yeah. unpleasant, yeah. but with all of the technical ability. Um, if you if you get him motivated, then he's yeah he's he's spiky, and and I think that's why he would be a good fit in the Premier League um, because he you know he's not going to be as although he's creative, he's not going to be bossed around. Uh, right, well, we're going to be doing more sensible transfers in this form for uh, the rest of, uh, well, most of January. Um, but for now, uh, before we come back to say goodbye to you, uh, there's 10 minutes with our good friend Joey Derso talking about uh, a piece that he's written recently on the culture war in football. So, Joey, uh, you wrote this piece, The Premier League's Internet Culture Wars. You use a few, a few different examples uh, in the piece. That The main one, or at least the one that you begin with, is uh, Liverpool 
making uh, headlines around the world as uh, as they show a heartwarming exchange between Jordan Henderson and uh, and a gay fan. And you note that on uh, many of Liverpool's social media outlets on Twitter and on Facebook and stuff, uh, or certainly the English language versions, they have the, the rainbow colours, but on some of their social media accounts that are dedicated to other regions and are written in other languages, uh, those colours are, are absent. Uh, tell me a little bit more about this. Yeah, so it certainly wasn't just Liverpool. I saw this with uh, Tottenham, Man United, other big clubs. And what they did is, as I said, as you said, in the English account, they'd have you know very prominent rainbow messages for rainbow laces, which is the Premier League's um, sort of anti-homophobia campaign. But then, notably, in other languages, um, they didn't. And there's a bit of an sort of awkward pattern to it that they tend, you know, they might have done it in French or Spanish, or you know, because clubs have accounts for all sorts of different languages. But in the, particularly in the Middle East, uh, Arabic language, there was sort of no mention of it, which I think is pretty easy to surmise. That is because, um, you know, attitudes towards um, gay rights there are not what they are in the UK. And I spoke to, um, you know, I approached all the clubs and they didn't respond, perhaps understandably, slightly embarrassed about it. But um, I spoke to a, a man called Wael Jabir, who runs um, social media accounts in Arabic in the Middle East. And he just says, um, you know, if, if you do these things in, in, uh, in Arabic or Turkish towards the Middle East, there would like to be a massive backlash. You know, homosexuality is illegal in many um, Middle Eastern countries and people you know, wouldn't be happy with it. And I think it's an interesting debate. Would, should Premier League clubs just do it anyway? Or um, do they risk, you know, creating a, a homophobic cesspit on their own account by, by doing it? It's a really hard one. And, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, and all clubs are dealing with this at the moment. They're trying to expand around the world yeah i mean i guess the thing that for me about it that um my 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 first instinct and i'll talk openly now is to assume that the clubs are being cynical and commercially minded and of course they wouldn't want to to do that uh, because it would uh, breed negative response and obviously they want their fans to support them and be be happy with them uh, do you, how much do you think that that plays into it? Because I know also you spoke to one or two people from the club side of things who had a slightly different perspective and and explained why they thought doing it actually might be counterproductive. I wonder if you can walk us through that side of the thinking because, as I said, my first instinct is just to think, well, uh, that's pretty shallow. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think people who are high up in football clubs tend to be uh, the sort of exec level or the senior management level tend to be, you know fairly liberal people on, on, that, on those sorts of topics such as gay rights and um, racism. And I think they are sincerely, to an extent, motivated by being against homophobia. But, you know, as soon as that clashes with other cultures, I think that get, that can get really difficult. And, and, you know, and you know, there's still no out gay players in English football and there's yeah. rife with abuse in, um, you know, and there's been some good athletic podcasts about that, that issue. So it's certainly not just something that happens um, in other countries. There's, there, are, there are some other interesting issues as well, like, for example, poppies, you know, uh, as any British listener will know, but maybe not from other countries, is that the, um, the, end of the, the end of the wars is celebrated in this country, but not celebrated, uh, marked with the poppy, which is this flower that grew on the graves of the fallen soldiers. And, um, you know, in, in this country, that's a fairly sort of politically neutral event. You know, most people will, will, will get behind it, but in other countries, um, particularly the Middle East, where they remember the... You know, the Iraq War, for example, the British Army doesn't have a great reputation and, and they don't put the poppies on the thing. It's maybe a more understandable um, difference in how social media is running in different countries. Another one is religious references, which might seem 
Oh, John, but, you know, I found a few tweets in Liverpool talking about Robbie Fowler as God, um, mm. and in parts of the world, that's just a no-no. Yeah, that's true. The, the other one that was really interesting is the is the take a knee before the game, which was long yeah. uh, associated with Black Lives Matter as a movement. Um, and I think they, they've changed what they're calling it now, right? Yeah, no room for racism is what they call it. I mean, this is a really interesting one because uh, I, I, I joined lots of these uh, Facebook groups and spoke to various people who run them, um, fans of various clubs. And um, pretty much all of them were behind the Rainbow Laces campaign or against homophobia in football. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean they act out in their, their daily life, but I didn't um, detect much sort of resentment towards that. But the Black Lives Matter, there really was um, quite a lot towards taking the knee. Quite a lot of fans said that, that you know, it was a huge issue in their groups, you know, sort of Southampton supporters group or whatever, it would come up again and again and again. And the arguments people used were, you know, why still do it, you know, haven't they done enough? Or associating Black Lives Matter with some of these more radical political organisations in the US and, you know, tearing down statues and things like that. I mean, there are lots of good, really, really good arguments against that. I think, you know, Ryan Conway from Athletic wrote a great um, piece on that. But that, there definitely is a lot of resentment from some fans towards uh, towards the, the Black Lives Matter and taking the knee. And at the extreme end, you saw that plane that flew over Burnley. Yeah. Um, during that game, White Lives Matter Burnley. But uh, there is a sort of lower level resentment as well, sort of why they're still doing it, um, you know, can't they move on sort of thing, which I think does go down quite deep. And it's not, you know, it's not all white supremacists. It's, it's people who are sick of it. And, you know, there, there's, as I said, Ryan wrote some really good counter arguments to that. You know someone who's, who's saying that sort of stuff. But, it, yeah. It, yeah, it's the culture war. It's football clubs are now at the centre of this, these culture wars and these political debates. And I think that really wasn't the case uh, 10 or 20 years ago. They sort of just opt out and not talk about it as much. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think what's what's interesting about the the Black Lives Matter example, uh, or the taking the knee example, is most of the, or a lot of the, the, the sort of criticism of it that I read uh, relates to how it is a, it is a political uh, stance, which I, I find to be an odd, thing i mean at first glance you know the assumption being you're suggesting that the uh, opposition to racism is political which those people will generally go on to tell you all oh, that's not that's not what we're saying we're saying that black lives matter is is officially a um, a a, uh, a uh, political party now in in the states and they have these uh, policies and and beliefs in their manifesto and i don't want to be aligned with that and that's a political and I, to a certain extent i understand that but at the same time i think you have to be being quite obtuse to not recognize the nuance in a uh, a political statement like taking a knee. I I don't think it's because uh, the Premier League players are expressing their political alignment with uh, a a uh, political party in, in the states. It's it's clearly that's clearly not what it's about. Um, and I think you know people might express fears over over that um, perhaps spreading without people realizing it, and maybe they you know they want to to I don't know they want to raise awareness of it or whatever. But that just that always that kind of argument always reminds me of. I don't know if you've ever seen this bit, but uh, I can't remember what what show it was. But Stuart Lee had a show where one of his bits was doing an impression of someone who so said the that they had. Thing. Yeah, the political. But he said, yeah. you know, he has genuine concerns about closening political ties with Europe. But he does it in a funny voice, and uh, that kind of that style of argument is, I think, the point you know being made being made by this bit is often something which covers up something else, which is just that you don't like it and. I don't have a. I, mean, I basically don't have any tolerance for that. 
as as it relates to the issue of exporting that view overseas, that it does become more complicated. Personally, not for me. Uh, and I think the issue that I have there. Well, do you think the club should just sort of do it? Just put the regulators on the Arabic and and write it out. I'm glad I'm not in the position where I have to make that decision. Uh, so I'm glad I'm in a position where I can say. No, yes, I'm really, I think I'm I really hard to say. Yeah. But I, I, it's I hard like to know I, what would happen. Or maybe maybe clubs should join together and do it. You know, just say you know. I think if they all did it, it'd be less of a, it'd make it easier. Maybe it would. And also, I guess, you know, it's a kind of issue with um, with what was once a kind of national sport now being a kind of globalised league. Um, I think, you know, the, the, but the, the, the real crux of the issue, I think, to come back to the beginning for, for me, is that these are commercial entities. They have commercial interests. It would be counterintuitive, I'm sure, um, for for what are now massive global brands to uh, disenfranchise huge numbers of their supporters overseas who share different uh, different beliefs and some that we wouldn't be tolerant of here, uh, it, at least where, where I am recording this podcast, maybe not where people are listening to it. Um, but the problem for me is it, it reminds me a little bit of when, you know, Twitter um, marked Donald Trump's tweets. I think that's a good thing. But I don't think it's a good thing that Twitter has the power to do it. You know, it's, that's, it's yeah, a, a yeah, very complicated... Yeah. Um, nuance of the modern world and I suppose the yeah the issue for me is that football clubs are even in this position uh, and that the heads and I'm sure the people who are making these decisions are also the people who are making commercial decisions and not necessarily the heads of the supporters groups or the actual community behind the clubs do you know what I mean yeah no no I totally agree and I think I think it's also important to remember that this idea of clubs being pressured to take social stances we're talking here about um you know, maybe not posting the rainbow stuff in certain areas, but it sort of goes the other way as well. Like, I think there's a good example from America, the, the Milwaukee um, Bucks boycotted a game, a really important game because of uh, George Floyd, who was from very nearby. The, the black man was killed by the police around that time. And he, they, the players just said, you know, we're not playing. And uh, the owners kind of fully backed them. And, uh, you know, they, they were being called, the, you know, they were being called in a sort of liberal social direction by players and fans and they knew that it would be very costly to them if they went against that um, and I think you know the same is true with uh, you know there, there's we hear a lot about the opposition to Black Lives Matter but you know it's, it's been football players that are driving it lots of fans are very much um, you know in favour of it and yeah I think there's a kind of especially as certainly in this country politics is sort of split between you know older generations that are more conservative and younger ones that are more liberal you know you get a lot young people who are spend a lot of time on the internet, especially in a pandemic, and they're going to be, um, you know, haranguing their football clubs to be more, to take social liberal stances. I think it, it goes both ways. It reminds me also of um, Nike, I think it was Nike doing the massive uh, Colin Kaepernick uh, advertising campaign shortly yeah. after that the taking the knee thing began, which seems, you know, initially to be a you know, you would have thought in the same way that some of these football clubs might not want to, to post the rainbow laces on their uh, Arabic-speaking accounts, for example. Uh, it might seem like a naive commercial decision, but when inspected more closely, it seems like a very clever commercial decision based on, you know, the future of that company. Yeah, it's trying to sell trainers to sort of young men, you know, lots of probably black men who, and the sort of old white women, well, whatever gender, who might disagree with that, probably not the kind of people they're trying to sell to. There you go. Well, anyway, uh, Joey Durso, the Pornbot guy, thanks so much for uh, for coming <laughs> coming on the podcast. <laughs>
You'd have to explain that. I don't think it's weirder. No, I won't. But if you want to know why, you should go to the YouTube channel and look for Porn Bots uh, on Tifa, and you'll, you'll see you'll get to see Joey in person. Uh, Joey, thanks, man, and hopefully we'll chat to you again soon. By the way, people really should check out your writing because uh, you are you write fewer pieces than the other athletic uh, writers do, but you can really see the value in that when uh, when you do post something. It's, it's I always read it on the. Fewer Maybe you should, uh, even even fewer. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll definitely be back soon, and we'll um, we'll chat about some of the other weird things you've been writing about. Cheers, Joe. Okay, that was Joey Dirt. So hey, thanks, Joey. Much appreciated. Um, Alex and Seb. Very quickly, I wanted to say to you before we go, uh, Uncle Damien bought us a, a, a gift, which only I will have because of the practicalities of us living in different places. Uh, but it's a it's a it's a football and sports trivia gift. Mm-hmm. Exciting. Let me whet your appetite. Excellent. Uh, Kazuki Honda asked Manchester United to sign him on Twitter. True or false? <laughs> hmm? uh, true or false? Come on, it's for Uncle Damien. Oh, no, I think that's true. It is true. It is yeah. true. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's father was Scottish. True or false? False. And that's the end of it for now. But we'll do more. <laughs> Is that all that we're allowed to have? <laughs> That's all that you're allowed. I'll tell you what, you can do one more. Sports trivia. Uh, question. What name is the <clears throat> professional wrestler Mark Calloway better known as? Is it A, The Rock, B, The Undertaker, or C, Triple H? The Rock is... Uh, Jalen, what's, what's The Rock's Dwayne name? Dwayne Johnson is The Rock. Dwayne Johnson. Johnson. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's I would a say The here. Undertaker. You are right. And do you know what? There's a fantastic six-part documentary series about The Undertaker called something like The Undertaker. I don't know what it's called. But uh, someone sent it to me, and I watched it, and it's it's really funny. (laughs) Six six parts? That man has had... I don't understand wrestling. Oh, he's had like 70 surgeries, or not that many, but something like 21 surgeries. Anyway, it it was made by... It's made by the WWE Network. So it's got... (laughs) It's a bit like the last uh, dance, but it's just The Undertaker and lots of other wrestlers. Uh, but the friend who sent it to me watches wrestling and enjoys it and said, you know, I'm always making fun of him. And he said, oh, you have to watch this. To be fair, you know, pretty good, pretty good uh, six part documentary series. Six Very parts? Might have been four mark. parts. I don't know. Wow. I can't okay. remember. All right. It all blurs into one, doesn't it? When you're watching a man have his all of his hips replaced. Uh but uh, they built up to this kind of final. I'm sure people listening who who watch WWE will be aware of this. But obviously, uh, you know, they are not unaffected by the pandemic, as you can imagine. So they've had to change up how they're doing WWE. And I think they're, you know, creatively thinking about different ways that they can uh, exhibit fights um, or, or wrestling matches or whatever they're called. And uh, one of them, the very famous one, I think it was called the Boneyard or the Graveyard fight. It was supposed to be the Undertaker's final, 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 final comeback fight against somebody I've never heard of. And uh, <laughs> tell you what, it is very funny. If, you, if you've got five minutes today. And producer Ben is going to shout at you. <laughs> Just go and watch some. Of, I honestly, I, I, nothing but respect for the way that these people that. make make it. They are they are clearly uh, committed professionals, and you obviously have to love this to do it because it's hard, hard, hard work. I totally respect and appreciate it. It's just funny to watch because. Uh, when you take the crowd away and you take the sort of association of the ring away and, uh, you know, the 
I don't know, all of the sort of trappings and you put them in a boneyard and there's no one cheering and they're dressed up still and they're in the real world. It just seems, you know, it's a bit like uh, if uh, if Gandalf just appeared on Upper Street. You know, it's not, it's just out of context, Gandalf looks ridiculous. In context, Gandalf looks like a badass. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. Anyway, we'll do more trivia in the in the next episodes. Uh, thanks, Uncle Damien, uh, who's had his pub closed uh, due to the national lockdown. So best wishes from Tifo to him. Uh, anyway, we'll be back uh, on uh, next Tuesday to do more of this and uh, hopefully to chat about whatever's happened over the, the weekend. So, uh, Alex, thank you. Thank you very much. And Seb, thanks to you. Thank you very much, Joe. Au revoir to the listeners. Goodbye. Goodbye.